This is our third message, and we're still just laying the foundation for the study of this, this book. Uh, we have been uh, looking, you can see at the top of your study sheet there, you can see that we've been looking specifically at the uniqueness of the book of Revelation. It is just an incredibly unique book of the Bible. But what we did last week when we started is, is we backed up from the book of Revelation to look at the whole of God's revelation to man, to see what it is about the Bible that makes the Bible stand out as unique apart from every other book in the entire world. And one of the places that we saw last week that God spells this out for us so very clearly is in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 9, where God says, Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And what we find here is that the God of the Bible is the God of history. And he says here, you can look at the verse here, you can look at it on your paper, wherever. It, what he says here is the former things are come to pass. And in the Bible, what God has done is he has given us the historical record of those things, those former things that have come to pass. He has given us the historical record of those things. And that's important, and those are important things for us to know. It's great to know, but there's certainly nothing that is supernatural about that. I mean, there have been a lot of great historians down through the centuries, but God is saying here, when I write history, I don't just write about what happened. What God says is I write about what hasn't happened in terms of it being history. In other words, I write history before it happens. He says Going on, new things, okay, these are things that haven't happened yet, do I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Just a few chapters over in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, God re reminds us that there's, there's nobody else anywhere and no book anywhere else that can make the same claim that he, sa that he makes. He, he says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none that's even like me. I'm, there's nobody close. There's, I'm, I'm it. I'm number one and there's no second place. There's no runner, runners up. He says, declaring the end from the beginning. In other words, I write the end of the book before any of the events even unfold. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not, not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. God says, I'll tell you what's going to happen. And once I tell you that it's going to happen, man, you can bank on it. It is going to happen just the way that I say that it's going to happen. And that's exactly what God has done for us in the book of Re Revelation. What he has done is he is in the book of Revelation, he has written history before it had even taken place. But before we actually go to the last book of the Bible to see that this morning, what I'd like to ask you to do is take your Bible and turn to the first book of the Bible and let me give you just what, in my estimation, is one of the neatest things in all of the Bible. And it comes in a, in a very weird kind of a, a package. Uh, you'll notice, of course, in Genesis chapter 1, and then on into Genesis chapter 2, that what God does is he gives us the record of creation. God 
placing man and woman in the garden. Chapter 3, God, of course, records their fall and the entrance of sin into the world. And Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 tells us that that sin has passed on to every single one of us so that every single one of us, just by virtue of our physical birth onto this planet, we came into this world a sinner separated from God. But that's chapter 3 of Genesis. Genesis chapter 4 is all about Cain and Abel, and it goes through all of that. But watch what God does in Genesis chapter 5. Just kind of cruise through there and, and, and look at this thing. What he does is he gives you a solid chapter of nothing more than a, a stupid genealogy. I mean, this is nuts. You know, you can, you can look at it, so-and-so lived this long, and he had a son, and then he croaked, and, and then he had a son, and, and he, when he was this age, well, he croaked, and... Uh, oh, you know, it's you know, like, wake me up when we get to something that's really significant. I mean, you, you love these when you're trying to read through the Bible in a year, don't you? I mean, you can just, we got, we got, we got, we got, we got, you know, and you're just kind of going through, all right, man, got through that chapter pretty quick tonight. But what we say is we say that every word of this book is the word of God. And that God doesn't waste space. And when God does things, he does things very, very specifically according to a very specific plan. The word of God says in Psalm uh, 12, verses six, verses 6 and 7, that every word of the lord is a pure word it's been tried in a furnace of earth seven times i mean god's wanting you to know something about the fact that it's not just this is a supernatural book but the very words are the very words of the living god and he doesn't stutter he doesn't wait space he, he chooses his words very carefully and I want you to see what, what, what takes place here in, in this, this chapter. I, I've got a chart for you there on your, in your study sheet. And you can see in the first column what I've done is I've listed for you the names of ten men. And they're the names of the, the ten generations of men that God brings us through in Genesis chapter 5. Now, basically, through all of this whole chapter, all he does is show you ten generations of men. This, these are, are their names. And let's just kind of run, run through these very quickly. First of all is Adam. And what is significant over in that middle column, what I want you to put in there, his name simply means man. Second is Seth. And his name means appointed. Next is Enos. His name means desperately wicked. Now, this, you're right now, I, I know some of you are going, what in the world are we doing this for? Who cares? Well, I'll show you in just a second. Just get it down, okay? It, uh, Enos, his name means desperately wicked. Fourth is Canaan. His name means possession. Possession. Fifth is Mahalaleel. His name means praise of God. Praise of God. Sixth is Jared, which means descent. Descent. Seventh is Enoch. And his name means dedicated or train up. Dedicated or train up. 
Eighth is the oldest man who ever lived, a guy by the name of Methuselah, and his name means man of the sword. Man of the sword. Number nine is Lamech. His name means powerful. And number 10 is Noah, and his name means rest. Now, in that middle column now, you should have a, a list of all of the meaning of, of these men's name. And what, what I want you to do is I want you to just kind of look through there. And now I know that, that we're all from different backgrounds as far as the Bible is concerned. Some of you are just getting introduced to the Bible. Others of you have been around forever and ever. And regardless of where you are, just, just look at that and, and just, just see if there aren't some things that begin to pop out. Man, appointed, desperately wicked, possession, praise of God, descent, train up, man of the sword, powerful, rest. Now, you know what's interesting as you begin to look at that? What you begin to find is that through these ten men and the meaning of their names, God is giving to us a portrait of human history. Look at your list now. Adam, meaning man, would represent creation when God created man. Okay? Specifically, the creation of man. God said in, in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 26... Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Then Seth, meaning appointed, it would represent the commission that God gave to the man. And right in there, commission. In the second part of, of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, it, God appoints man to have dominion over everything in the earth and the sea and all that is within them. In verse 28, he appoints him or commissions him along with his bride to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. In a nutshell, God commissions him to reproduce sons of God in the image of God for the glory of God on this planet. So, Adam, God creates man. Seth, God commissions him. He appoints him to a task. Number three is Enos. Man's heart, Jeremiah 17, 9, becomes, what? Desperately wicked. And, of course, this event is the fall. Genesis chapter 3. Man loses the image of God. He loses the ability to reproduce sons of God. And now he only has the ability to reproduce sons of Adam. And you see that in Genesis chapter 3, and, and or Genesis chapter 5 and verse 3. After the fall of Adam, he begat a son in his own likeness after his own image. You see, that's a problem. Oh my goodness, so maybe God isn't going to be able to fulfill his plan. But the next name, Canaan, means possession. And God is showing us the direction that the plan that he has is going to go and how he would fulfill it. In Genesis chapter 17... God enters into an unconditional covenant with a man by the name of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 17 and verse 7, he says, And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Now, who is this seed after him that he keeps talking about? It is the what? 
the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel. And watch what he says in Genesis 17 and verse 8. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting, look at that next, next word, possession, and will be their God. Through Abraham, God calls out the nation of Israel and promises them a possession. In fact, the first mention of the word possess in the Bible is in Genesis 14 and verse 19, when Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the king of peace, which is, of course, a picture of Christ, comes to Abraham and says, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth and at that point abraham's probably going what what is what's, what's this dude talking about i mean he didn't really fully understand what that even meant but over in genesis chapter 17 and verse 6 god let him know he told abraham that kings shall come out of these so now now get this in your mind what god does is he calls out the nation of israel and you put the promise of the possession and a king into that equation and you understand exactly what it is that God is trying to get us to see. This nation is going to produce the king who will rule over all the earth when all of the Gentile nations of the world will come to Jerusalem to praise the God of Israel. And the next man's name is Mahalalel, meaning praise of God. And in 1 Kings chapter 10, it's incredible. In the reign of Solomon, you can put that in that box, the reign of Solomon, you know what's happening? In 1 Kings chapter 10, the nation of Israel is the praise of God. And the kings and queens of the Gentile nations of, of the world are coming to bow their knee before the king of Israel and to present gifts to him. And, to him. and what it is, it is the glory days of the nation of Israel where they are the praise of of God and but no sooner are you out of first Kings chapter 10 but first Kings chapter 11 begins their descent the descent of the nation of Israel and of course the next man in the genealogy his name is Jared which means descent and what it begins is it begins a downward spiraling that ultimately leads to them being taken into captivity in Babylon in second Kings chapter 25 Verses 1 through 11, you can put in, in captivity there. What happens to the nation of Israel? They go from being the praise of God into a descent where they are ultimately taken into captivity. And there's no more king in Israel. And again, it looks like the plan of God is not going to be fulfilled. And then there's this long period of silence. God doesn't speak to anyone or, to re or reveal any new truth to anyone on this planet for a period of 400 years when all of a sudden a very dedicated man comes on the scene in fact jesus said of this man in matthew chapter 11 and verse 11 among them that are born there hath not risen a greater than john the baptist and you can plug that in there and this man has got some instruction for the nation of israel doesn't he some training up as it were john the baptist comes on the scene saying in matthew chapter 3 and verse 2 repent ye 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand a message to the nation of israel about this one who is coming in verse 3 of that of matthew chapter 3 prepare ye the way of the lord make his paths straight and what is he preparing the people for the first coming of christ the coming of you already see it the man of the sword and the next in the genealogy is methuselah meaning the man of the sword and we know we know what the sword is right ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17 the sword of the spirit which is the word of god john 1 1 says in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and in john 1 verse 14 it says and the word was made flesh or became a man and dwelt among us and he came the first time full of grace and truth he came meek and and lowly he came as the lamb of god but when he comes the next time at his second coming it won't be like that at all will it mark chapter 13 verse 26 says the sun will come with great power and glory revelation 19 verse 15 says that the man of the sword will, will now use that sharp sword to, that goes out of his mouth to smite the nations of that time the time of the second coming in second peter chapter 1 and verse 16 peter referred to it as the power and coming of our lord jesus christ in mark chapter 9 and verse 1 jesus referred to it as the kingdom of god come with power and the next man in the genealogy lamech his name just happens to mean power or powerful and the second coming uh when christ does come in power and smites the nations and puts his enemies under his feet will bring that period of rest on the earth that we call the millennium and that's that last blank there millennium and coincidentally enough the last man in the genealogy noah his name means rest and the moral of the story is folks the book that you hold in your hand is a divine book it is a supernatural book the very word and words of the living god and god knows what he's doing folks and god knows where he is going and you know it, it, we can sit here and we can go through that genealogy and we can go that is that's just too incredible that's that's too bizarre my goodness this god is so incredibly great and i mean how in the world can god through something like a stupid genealogy bring you through the entire history of man and reveal the end from the beginning how how does his mind even begin to think like that and and all of a sudden we're just filled with this overwhelming sense of trust and faith that god is going to fulfill his plan on the earth and that god is going to fulfill his plan in the universe but i'll tell you where it breaks down it breaks down when we begin to think about that plan for our life doesn't it and all of a sudden this great faith and confidence we have because of what god has done in revealing his truth to us we know he's going to fulfill his plan for the earth we know he's going to fulfill his plan for the universe but the, oh man the things i'm going through in my life right now i'm just i'm a basket case and, and don't you realize that god is simply doing that in your life he is fulfilling his plan in your life and he's going to do it 
You just keep, keep your nose in the book. Just keep following the man of the sword, and God is going to get you where he wants you to be, and you can trust that. I don't know, I don't care what the circumstances look like in your life right now. What this book is all about is the God of history saying, I know the end from the beginning, and folks, that's true in all of our lives. And man, that's what is, is taking place here in Genesis chapter 5, and that, that's, that's incredible, but... We're talking specifically now about the book of Revelation. Now, all of the Bible is, as we've been talking about, a unique book of history. But when you take the book of Revelation now and you put it into the context of the whole of God's revelation to man, in, in this whole book of a very unique history that God has revealed, the book of Revelation stands out among all of the others as the most unique book of history in the entire Bible. And that begins, you begin to understand that when you understand the content of the book. And this is what, this is what God did with the Bible. What he did is he gave us, he gave us 66 books, 1189 chapters in all, from cover to cover. And what he did in those 66 books and 1189 chapters is he gave to us every single thing that he wanted us to have. Peter talks about the fact that he has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. But what's interesting is that in the first 65 books of the Bible, from Genesis all the way to Jude, what God does for us is he records approximately the first 4,000 years of human history. And then he comes to the final book, the book of the Bible that will mark the completion of God's revelation to man. In fact, he even calls that, that book that completes his revelation, he even calls it the revelation. And within the 22 chapters of this book, God records for us the last 3,000 years of human history. Now, back in Genesis chapter 2, Verses 1 through 3, what God does is he shows you something about how he completes something. Now listen very carefully. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, what God does is he shows you how he completes something. And that is, he does it according to 7. 7 is the number of completion or the number of perfection. He starts in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 with the pattern of seven days. And you get to seven, and it's complete. And then you know what you do after it's complete? You start over with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So the pattern begins with seven days. God worked in six, and on the seventh, he rested. In Genesis chapter 2, and verse 3 says that he sanctified that day. The word sanctified means he set it apart. He set that day apart for himself. So we've got the pattern of six days of work, and then the seventh is one that God set apart for himself as a rest. But when you begin to study the Bible, what you find is that the pattern of seven days is not only... The, the, the only pattern that God uses in, in, in establishing the sevens in the Bible, what you see is God goes and he uses seven days. We looked at this last week. He goes seven weeks. He counts seven 
months. He counts seven years. He counts seven weeks of years. And you come through all of that in the Old Testament and you begin to see God working that pattern. The days, the weeks, the months, the years, the weeks of years. And then you come to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8 and you find that God says, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. So God gets our attention. He said, now guys, listen, don't you miss, don't you miss this one thing. What one thing is that, God? That one day, one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And so you go back and you plug that into the original pattern of the days that God lines out there in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And what you find out is that God not only works according to the pattern of seven days, seven weeks, seven months, seven years, seven weeks of years, but seven millenniums or seven thousand year increments. And God is laying out for us, listen, that he will complete human history after seven millenniums. And the pattern will be, there will be 6,000 years, and then the last thousand years, the seventh, will be a rest. And when you come to the book of Revelation, in the content of the, the book of Revelation, what God does is he completes human history again he took all of the rest of the bible 65 books 1167 chapters to bring you through the first 4,000 years and then in one remaining book of 22 chapters he brings you through the remaining 3,000 years and since god is using this book to complete human history well just guess how he lays out the book of Revelation. He lays it out according to that same pattern that you can see all the way through the Bible. He lays it out according to sevens. And what you find in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 is God brings you through the completion of church history. And he does it by sevens. He shows seven periods of church history. Our Lord dictates to John in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 seven letters to the seven angels of the seven churches of asia minor and those seven letters as we'll see as we progress in this study what those seven letters do is they outline for us the seven periods of the two thousand years of the church age just like god said in isaiah chapter 42 he lays all of these things out before it even happens here is john writing in 90 a.d and what he does God gives him a revelation to where he is going to be able to record all of the church history all the way up to the rapture of the church, which takes place immediately after that third letter in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. And what God does is he shows him seven periods of that thing. Then in chapters 4 through 19 of the book, God brings you through the tribulation period, which just happens to be a period of seven years and then in chapter 20 you know what it is chapter 20 of the book of revelation is a description of the seventh day of genesis chapter 2 and verse 3 you remember god saying that he sanctified that day he set that day apart for himself 
That's the Lord's day, the day of the Lord. And remember, God showed us a day is as a thousand years to him. And Revelation chapter 20 is all about a thousand year period of rest on the earth, which begins immediately after the first 6,000 years of human history. 4,000 coming up from Genesis to Jude. They've got the 2,000 year period in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And then Revelation chapter 20 is that seventh day, that 7,000 year period where there'll be rest on the earth and all of the, the nations of the world will come to Jerusalem where there is sitting enthroned on the earth in that throne in Jerusalem, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he rules and reigns over all of the earth, receiving the glory that he deserves. And do you remember what God shows us, what you do after seven? What do you do? You start over, don't you? And what's interesting is you come to the close of Revelation chapter 20 where he shows you the fulfillment of that seventh day. And you know what Revelation chapter 21 is? It's the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. And Revelation chapter 20 moves right on in to eternity. Folks, that is just a real unique book of the Bible right there. I mean, God is completing his revelation through the book of Revelation. And that's great. I mean, you, you need to understand the content of this book before we actually begin to dissect it. That's why I'm trying to show you the uniqueness of the book. Once you begin to see and you begin to understand that's the way that God has laid this thing out, that's what God is trying to show us, then it's going to be a whole lot easier for you in the coming days and weeks as you read through the book of Revelation. It's going to be easy for you to be able to figure out where you are in this thing. You can just understand what God has done through the unique content of this book. But there's something that makes the book of Revelation even more unique than just the, the content of, of this thing, and that is the author of this book, a very unique author. And this is where you're going to catch the heart of the book. The heart of the book. Now, and we looked at the fact that it's a very unique history. We saw that through that, the content of the book. Now we're going to look at its unique author and catch the heart of the book. I, I don't know if you've ever spent any time putting together all of the things that the New Testament reveals about John. And of course, John, the apostle, is the one who wrote the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, at the end of the verse, it says that, that he sent and signified this revelation by his angel unto his servant, John. And if you just step back, and if you just begin to look at the life of John, as, you, as it's recorded in the, 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 the Word of God, and you begin to pull some things together, what you find is that the apostle, the apostle John is probably the most unique man, other than, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's probably the most unique man in all of the New Testament, if not the whole Bible. And as you begin to follow the life and, and ministry of our Lord, that becomes very evident. And we're, we're going to take some time uh, this morning in this next ses section to, to look at these things. And as we do, I want you to see and take note of the fact that John is the greatest type or the greatest picture, the greatest illustration of what a Christian should be in the entire New Testament. For example, Jesus begins his ministry and he calls out 
the twelve. These twelve men that would be his disciples. And it becomes evident as you begin to look at this thing, this is letter A, that John, out of all of the disciples, that John is going to be a very unique follower. A unique follower. Again, Jesus calls twelves, and I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but in, in in a loose sense, the twelve really picture and represent all of Christianity. There are some things that are true about that group that have been true of every group of believers that have ever gathered together on this planet. And when you get right down to it, those 12 are really a a great picture of the people who have gathered together in this room this morning. You see, there was 12 of them. Now, there's more than 12 of us in here. But in that 12, you can see a lot of the same characteristics from that 12 that you can see that are true of the people in this room. Okay, there was 12 of them, but one of the 12, though he made the same claim as, as all of the others, and though he looked like a Christian, and he knew how to talk the language, I mean, he could talk Christianese, he had all of the stuff down, and though he had all of the stuff down, he knew all of the lingo, he looked the part and dressed the part and talked the part and all of that. The only problem was this one guy wasn't even saved. And his name is Judas. You know, we go through quite an ordeal in this church about church membership. I mean, it's it's not the easiest thing in the world to become a member of this church. We sit people down and we want to we know what their testimony is. We want to know how they came to Christ. We, we want we them, them to delineate what it was that they believed about Christ the day that they, they supposedly received him. And we go through all of that. But you know what? The truth of the matter is, though we do, we labor to, to make sure that every person who is a member of this church is saved, the fact of the matter is, I am quite certain that not everybody who is a covenant member in this church is somebody who is saved. Jesus talked about the fact that there are tares that are mixed in with the wheat. And you're looking at that maybe saying, well, how can that happen? Well, there's a lot of people who have an intellectual assent to where they believe all of the right things and all of that. And because they believe all the right things and they think that that must mean that they're, they're saved or, or maybe, maybe something's taking place and, and some of the, your, your friends are coming to Christ and, and there's kind of a little bandwagon that starts happening. And so maybe because your friends are doing this thing, maybe it becomes a little thing to do to get on the Jesus bandwagon. I, I, I don't know. I don't, there, there's all kinds of different possibilities that it can happen. But it's just real easy to get your name on the rolls of a church and begin to dress the part, look the part, talk the part, the whole deal, and never really be a part. I I believe this morning that if the rapture were to take place this morning, and, and it well could, I do not believe that everybody who is a member of this church would be taken. And I'm telling you, it it literally freaks me out sometimes because I don't know what more could be said. You know, I don't know how to come at it from a, a different angle. But, it, but it's true, and we see that represented in, in the 12. One of them wasn't even saved. He had a, a profession, but he had no possession. And then the, the rest of the 11. Of the rest of the 11, there were eight. And, and these guys, they were saved. And man, they're, 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 they're great folks. And man, they, they get their Sunday school pen. They go to church. They sing the songs. They give their offerings. They come to that, the, the activities and all that. But that's about as far as it goes. They're just kind of satisfied with, with being average. And folks, 
that's, that's most Christians today. They're like the eight. They're just satisfied with, with going to church and paying the taxes and praying before you eat and you know, raising your kids in a wholesome environment and being a good neighbor and staying married and, and then you die and then you go to heaven. But they go through all of that and they've never really done Jack Diddley for the Lord. Never really involved in, in taking the word of God and fulfilling the great commission. And there's a lot of the eight. It represents most of Christianity. But then there were three. And man, those three couldn't be satisfied with the status quo. There were three of them who had a more intimate relationship with the Lord than all of the others. And you know who they are, right? Who are they? Peter, James, and John. And you begin to look in the Bible and you find in Matthew 17, 1, that these men witnessed greater miracles than all of the other. Matthew 17, 1 is all about the transfiguration. And you'll notice that at the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, it was only Peter, James, and John who was there. When Jesus raised Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5 and verse 37, when Jesus raised her from the dead, the only ones there were Peter, James, and John. They witnessed greater miracles than the others. In Mark chapter 13, in verse 3, the Lord revealed to them what He revealed to no one else. That These men, they were able to see what others couldn't see. In Mark chapter 14, verses 32 and 33, in the garden, it was those three that Jesus took apart from all of the rest. They went further than all of the rest. They were just more in tune with, with the Lord. And I, and I don't know why it happens. I don't know how to explain uh, the whole thing of, of, of what causes this to happen. All I know is that there are some people in this room who are like those three. And, and they're, they're more plugged in. Their walk is more intimate. They experience more of the power of God on their lives. They, they, they're able to see what other people don't see. And, and, and while everyone else is just kind of passively walking through life and they're getting all bent out of shape because of something somebody did or, or something that, that somebody didn't do, that rather than that, man, these people, they walk through life and they, they've got their eyes fixed on something that nobody else can see except through the eyes of faith. They're beholding things that, that nobody else can see. And they walk up mountains with the Lord and there He reveals to them what He reveals to, to nobody else. They just get into this book and they're able to, to see things. They go further than anybody else. And yet, even out of those three, there's one that goes even further and that's, that's John. John is a picture of one who goes all the way with Christ. It, it comes down to the crucifixion. Judas has already done his thing. God only knows where the other eight went. James is gone. Matthew 26, verse 58, says that Peter is following afar off. He ends up denying the Lord three times. They're all gone. But you know where you find John at the crucifixion? In John chapter 19, verse 26, he's right where he's supposed to be. He's at the cross, at the feet of Jesus. Man, what a unique follower this guy is. 
the only one of the twelve that followed all the way, all the way through the whole thing. And God has for this unique follower, letter B, a very unique title in the Bible. And you know what it is? It's not said of any other disciple. On six different occasions, when when the Bible is making reference to John, when it could have very easily just said John, the Holy Spirit of God inspired it to be written, the disciple whom Jesus loved. You know why the Holy Spirit chose to give him that title? It was because Jesus had a very special love for John. And you know why Jesus had this special love for John? It was because John had a very special love for Jesus. You know what, folks? If you want to learn what it is to love God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength like we've been commanded, you know a great place to look? It's the one whom Jesus loved. John is a, is a great picture of that. And, and that love that, that he had for the Lord, that, that John had for the Lord, gave him something else. Let her see. It gave John a very unique confidence. You remember when the Lord was eating the Passover with his disciples in the upper room? He began to tell them that one of them was going to betray him. And you know what Matthew chapter 26 and verse 22 says? It says... Then began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? But that's not the question that John asked. They're all going around, Lord, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? John says in John 13, verse 25, Lord, who is it? Lord, who is it? Now, he may not have had enough spiritual discernment to figure out which which one it was that would do it. I'm sure if Frank would have been there, Frank would have known right from the very get-go. And John may not have had the discernment of Frank, but I will tell you this. John knew who it wasn't. It wasn't going to be him. And maybe that's why when Jesus was hanging on the cross, letter D, Jesus trusted John with a very unique stewardship. You remember what he did in John chapter 19 and verse 26? He gave his mother to John. Hey, you know what? That's trust, man. He gave the watch care of his very own mother to this very unique man. And have you ever wondered what that whole gig was was all about? I mean, sure, I, I know that Jesus is, I know he's wanting to console his his mother at that time because certainly giving birth to the lord jesus christ she would have been grieving probably like no other human being on on the planet and and he wanted to make sure i'm sure jesus wanted to make sure that someone was watching out for her i know that he wanted to make sure that somebody was going to love her and somebody would take responsibility for her and i certainly don't want to minimize the significance and the importance and the beauty of all of those things but we also got to understand that that's a picture that's taking place right there Remember, John is a picture of the church. And Revelation chapter 12 and verse 2, what you find there is Mary represents the nation of Israel. And listen, the care 
and the watch care of the nation of Israel has been given to the church. This is what Paul was talking about in, in Romans chapter 9 and, and 11 where he was talking about the fact that the church has a responsibility to the Jew and what he says there is you better not forget the Jew and the fact that God has a plan for the nation of Israel. In Romans chapter 11 verse 25, Paul, Paul talked about that as we as the church that we better not become wise in our own conceits we better realize that blindness has happened in part to Israel to allow us to be able to have a part in this whole thing. And he says they may be enemies of, of the gospel right now, but they are the beloved of the Father. And so as a picture of the church, Jesus gave the watch care of his very own mother to John. And buddy, don't you know that John took that responsibility very seriously? The scripture says that, that day he took her into his own house. And what a, what a relationship that John had with, with Jesus. But you know what? The, the, greatest, the greatest thing about John, the thing that makes him more unique than perhaps any other person in the Bible we haven't even seen yet, and that is letter E, the very unique privilege that John had. The unique privilege that John had. Now there have been some great men in the Bible. Men who have had some unbelievable privileges. I, I mean, you think about Abraham. You, you know what God called Abraham in Isaiah 41 and verse 8? Called him my friend. Wow. I mean, wouldn't that be the coolest thing? for the God of this universe to talk about you and when he talks about you to call you his friend and what about Enoch Hebrews 11 5 says that he had this testimony that he pleased God I mean what more could you want to have said about you than that that you pleased God man what an honor what a, what a privilege and because he had that testimony Hebrews 11 5 said that he didn't see death, but God translated him or raptured him. What a guy. What a privilege. And then there's Moses. And listen to Exodus chapter 33 and verse 11. And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. If God was going to describe your prayer life, would He describe it like that? I mean, that's that's awesome. I'm, what else could anybody else want than that? I mean, to talk to the God of the universe face to face as a man talks to his friend. And what about Elijah? Second Kings chapter two and verse nine says that Elijah was walking along, talking with Elisha one day, when all of a sudden, in verse eleven of Second Kings chapter two. God sent a chariot of fire and horses of fire to come down and get Elijah and take him to be with him. I mean, can, can you imagine that? And then there's David. And, and you know what it said about David in 1 Kings chapter 15 and verse 5? It says, David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord and turned not aside from anything that God commanded him 
all the days of his life, save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful? And I know that was a, a, an incredibly dark stain, but for the God of the universe to say about you that you did what was right all the days of your life except in this one matter. You know what? Right now, I'm just telling you, I'm a pretty young man. It couldn't be written of my life like that. Man, it would be except for this and except for this and except for this. And Is that not true of all of us? I mean, we're talking about some great men here. I've tried to just bring you through to just get us thinking about men in the Bible who were just incredibly privileged of God, but none of them, none of them, none of them were privileged like the Apostle John was privileged. None of them had the privilege that John had. John had the privilege of privileges because John 13 in verse 25 says that John had the unbelievable privilege of laying his head on Jesus' breast. And I know that you know that he did that in that upper room. And you know, the deal is we're reading through that story of what was going on in the upper room there. And we just kind of breeze over that. And we talk about how culturally, you know, how culturally at this time when they would eat, they would recline. And, and so what you had is you had Jesus and he was sitting here. And so John would be laying across this way as they were taking of the you know, the cup and the bread and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But listen, do you realize whose breast it was that Jesus, or that John had his head on? It is God in human flesh. And here is John, in John 13, with his head on Jesus' breast. And with his head on Jesus' breast, do you know what he heard, folks? He heard the very heartbeat of God. And, and, and listen, you, you, can, you can call that spiritualizing if you want. And you can say, well, you're just dramatizing the point. You can call it whatever you want. I'll just tell you this. The problem that we've got in Christianity today is that we don't have our head on Jesus' breast to hear the very heartbeat of God. Oh, a lot of activity. A lot of nice words. And a lot of consistency when it comes to our daily devotions. But just not a lot of people today like John who are so intimate and so privileged by God that they are able to hear the very heartbeat of God. Have you ever thought about what it took for him to actually get his head onto the breast of Jesus. You know what it meant? It meant that he had to bend his stiffened neck to get it over there. And there's just a lot of Christians with stiff necks today. They ain't going to bend, ain't going to bow to nobody anymore. You know what it means? It means you've got to humble yourself. You've got to get that, that neck where it's not stiff and you get that thing over and you submit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ you know, on a consistent basis. You not just go into this book to have your daily devotions, but you go there to have the privilege that the only, listen, the only people other than John who could ever have the privilege that John had 
is the church. If we have the Holy Spirit of God in us, we've got the complete Word of God in our hands, and He said He would reveal to us the very Word of God. And when we have the Spirit of God in us and we'll tuck ourselves into the pages of this book, what we begin to do is not just learn a bunch of nice facts about the Bible and, and, and be able to, to go through the book of Revelation. Yes, in chapters 2 and 3, there's the seven periods of church history and then the seven years of Revelation, chapter 4 and 19, through the tribulation period. And chapter 20 is the, 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 the seventh day fulfilled of uh, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3. Then the new heaven, new earth. And, you know, we can do all of that kind of stuff. Big deal. If you miss the heart of this thing. And what God is wanting to reveal is his heartbeat. You remember, and I wear some of you guys out with this Song of Solomon, chapter 2, in verse 6. What you've got is, is a, a marriage. You've got Solomon, the son of David who takes to himself a Gentile bride. And you know what the picture is in, Revel, or in Song of Solomon 2.6? His left hand is under my head, and with his right arm he doth embrace me. Do you see that? John chapter 13, do you see that's where John was? And that's the picture of the church. That's where the Lord wants us, guys. Uh, the facts are great. and if you, We need to learn the content. But if we come through all the content of the book of Revelation and we're able to dissect this thing backwards and forwards, and I hope by the time, if, if you stick with it long enough, I, I hope you're able to do that. But I want you to see that the thing that makes this book so unique is the guy that wrote it because he's a picture of us in the arms of Jesus with our head on his breast listening to his heartbeat. That's where God wants us. And, and listen, I'm not talking about us visual, you know, the visualization thing and us picturing ourselves on the very breast of... You know, I, I'm not talking about that thing. We come to this book and this is where we get our stiffened neck onto the very breast of the Lord Jesus Christ. Most, most Christians, listen, most Christians on this planet right now, do you understand? The only heartbeat they hear is their own. They are so preoccupied with self, Jesus said, that one of the characteristics of these last days is that men would be lovers of their own selves. And we're just interested in our heartbeat. Listen to what we want to do. Or are there some people who, who hear the heartbeat of others? There's some people who've got their head lit, right, right out there in the world and they're, they're, they're worldly wise and they know all the things of the world and they're listening to the heartbeat of the world trying to figure out what's the newest thing. And you're getting on all of that. And what God is wanting is for His people to get to the point to where what they hear is His heartbeat. Maybe the reason we have so many problems in the church age and we have such a hard time coping with life in these Laodicean days is we're not like John, nestled up in an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then John also had a unique responsibility. Have you ever thought about 
what the Lord Jesus Christ used the Apostle John to write. We know that he wrote the Gospel of John, right? And you begin to go through, and, and there are four accounts of the first coming of Christ through the Gospels. You've got Matthew. And in the Gospel of Matthew, the reason you have four is, is, is the Lord is having these men write from different perspectives. And in Matthew, the Lord is presented as the King of the Jews. And then in Mark, he is presented as a servant. And what you'll find in the Gospel of Mark is there's no genealogy in this one. You know why? Because with servants, you don't get into all of that. He's presented as a servant. In Luke, he's presented as the Son of Man. But in John, he's presented as the Son of God. And would you listen to the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 31. John chapter 20, verse 31. It says, But these are written, listen, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. And, and it's, like, it's like this. It's, it's, like, it's like the Lord says, listen, I, I, need, I need one Gospel to tell the people of this planet how to enter into a relationship with me. And John, there's nobody that has ever had a relationship with me like you've had a relationship with me. And so what I want you to do is I want you to write this gospel on how to have a relationship with me. And so he takes John and he inspires him to write the gospel of John. We know also that he wrote... 1st John and 2nd John and 3rd John. You know what those epistles are? Those are three of the most intimate books in the Bible. 1st John alone. 38 times you find the word no. K-N-O-W. No, no, no. And do you see it? It's as if the Lord is saying, listen, John, nobody knows me like you know me. Because nobody else has ever heard my heartbeat. And so, John, I want you to be able to write this book all about knowing me. And, John, you know what? When I looked down from the cross, the last thing I saw was you. And so, John, I want you. I want you to write these three books all about intimacy with me. And then we come to the book of Revelation. You know what the book of Revelation really is? You, you know what, it, all of chapter 1, what we're going to be seeing as we begin to, to, to dig into going verse by verse and word by word next week? You know what this is all about? It is Jesus saying, I have a message for the church. That, that's what Revelation chapter 1 says. He has a, a message for the church. And do you see it? It's as if Jesus is saying, listen, John, nobody... Nobody pictures the relationship that I want to have with my church like you, John. Nobody pictures it like you. So, John, I want you to be the one that will write the message to the church. Man. You know what? The book of Revelation is 
incredible book, guys. You're going to see things that will rock your world in this book. But what you need to do is you need to make sure as we're going into this thing that you've got the heart of it. And you understand in verse 1 when it talks about, when, when Jesus is, is revealing here that this is my servant, John, that you understand that the thing that makes this unique is the guy that God used to pin it. And then, another thing that makes this book unique, and we'll do this quickly, I want you to turn to the book of Revelation with me, if you will. The third thing that makes this such a unique book is the fact that it bears such a unique promise. And this is the blessing of the book. The blessing of the book. I want you to look at what he says in verse 3. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and watch this now, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. This book carries with it a very special promise, and it is a promise of blessing. And the promise comes, listen, to those who will read and those who will hear and those who will keep. And you know what's interesting? As, as you come through the, the seven letters to the seven churches, would you look in, in Revelation chapter 2? In verse 7, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Drop down to verse 11. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. In verse 17, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Verse 29, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Chapter 3, Verse 6, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Verse 13, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Verse 22, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Read it. But don't just read it. Make sure you hear what the Spirit is saying unto the churches. And once you've heard it, listen. Keep it. Read it and understand what you read. And keep. Keep it. Obey it. And I want you to listen. Don't, don't, don't be trying to finish your study sheet right now. Would you listen? The message that he has to the churches Five out of the seven letters that he writes, you know what the command is to the church? Repent. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Repent. And for some of us that are here this morning, what that means is to turn from our own way and our sinfulness and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and come and humble ourselves to Him at the foot of His cross and say, Lord, I 
am a sinner and I know it. I repent of my sin and I come trusting you and you alone. Not my church, not my baptism, not my whatever. You can fill in the list. Any And then there's all kinds of religious things that people are telling you today that you've got to do in order to repent but all that it really comes down to is turning from your way to God's way through the person of Jesus Christ who died on the cross to take your sin, to pay your penalty. He was buried. He rose the third day in victory over the price of sin that was paid. And now the message that he has for you, if you'll be blessed and receive the promise of this book, is repent and turn from everything else that you're trusting, your good works, your church, and anything that has taken place anywhere in your life other than you accepting by faith alone the blood of Jesus Christ as the full payment for your sin alone. But for the rest of us, there is a message of repentance as well. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, and that is repent. You know what? Some of us, as we are going through that whole deal about the uniqueness of John, some of you are the one, like Judas. A lot of you are like that eight, satisfied with being average. And you know what the message to you is? Repent from being average. Some of you some of you are like James and John. And yeah, you man, you're 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 highly involved. You're doing a lot of things, you've taken a lot of missions trips and all the other. But you're not like John. And you know what the message is? Repent. And come and humble yourself and begin to hear the heartbeat of God. Let's bow our heads together. Now don't 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 zone out Christians. Chances are real good. What you need to do right now is repent. But for those of you that are here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, oh, oh would you listen very carefully? Today, the Lord Jesus Christ can take all of the sin of your life and wash it in the blood that He shed on His cross, and you can become a child of God today in this very service. And what's going to happen here in just a couple of minutes, our our service is going to be concluded. And we're going to have our pastors who will be up on either side of this worship center, right up here at the front. These men are here to talk to you about you having a relationship with Jesus Christ And we would love the privilege of taking a Bible and showing you how you can come into that relationship this morning. And so, right now, you need to be just searching your heart. And the Scripture says today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your heart. You know, for some of you folks, I I came to a, a service years ago now, and I sat into a service and I listened to a man preach, but you know what was obvious to me while I was sitting there? is that I was not hearing just a man preach, but God was taking His Word and the God of this universe 
was speaking to me about my life and the relationship that he wanted to have with me. And there's probably some of you that are here this morning and that very thing happened to you in the midst of this service today. The God of this universe was speaking to you saying, I want to have an intimate, personal, love relationship with you. And I beg of you today, he says, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. Now, Father, I do pray that in all of our lives that you would, you would speak to us. In the area in our life where we need to repent, I pray that we would be honest enough with you to do just that. Help us to know the, the blessing that you want to give to us by keeping what we've heard as we have read this morning what you have said to us as a church or maybe somebody who doesn't know you. And Lord, would you please do in us today what you want done in Jesus' name.